All right, welcome to Reflection as a Service. We're really happy to have you back listening to us again for this fifth episode, James. We've been at this for a really long time now, five full episodes. Episode five. Episode five. So I'm joined by James, my co-host, the Jeffers. And we're, <laughs> we are here to talk on Reflection as a Service about software engineering, technology in general, and entrepreneurism. And the guest that we have today is going to be absolutely fabulous. He is uh, Nathaniel Talbot. Yeah, so um, Nathaniel runs Spreedly, which is a company that does uh, payment gateway um, management. So essentially a company can talk to Spreedly's API and be able to process their payments through any number of other payment gateways. And it kind of it abstracts all of the complexity away from the, your development team. Uh, so you don't have to reinvent the wheel over and over for each platform. Yeah, and he's from right here in the triangle. You know, a lot of times, James, we don't talk about where we're at and what we do um, in, in this area. That we, We're coming from you live from North Carolina. And believe it or not, these are our voices. We're not hiding crazy yokel uh, accents or anything. Um, but we're in North Carolina. We're in the Research Triangle, which is made up of Chapel Hill, Raleigh, and Durham. And in that area, you have a number of other little cities. Nathaniel and his group, I believe, are based in Raleigh. Or no, I'm sorry, they're in Durham. Is yep. that right? James? Yeah, they're. Well, yeah, uh, downtown Durham, as a matter of fact. Nathaniel Talbot, welcome. We're so happy to have you on Reflection as a Service, and we're really interested in learning a lot about you and about Spreedly. I think James has got some questions for you, but uh, welcome to the show. We're really glad to have you here. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so with that, James, you want to jump in? I know you guys have a relationship, um, and that's where we got this contact from. What's our relationship, James? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't, I'm trying to remember the first time I met you. I think it probably was at the Ruby meetup. And I think it was uh, one that was near NC State, and you said, hey, we're going to go grab burritos beforehand. And uh, I think that was my first uh, Talbot exposure. Um, and then, uh, you know, full disclosure, I, I did actually work with Breedly for a short while as a contractor. Um, Back in the day. Two years ago, I think it was. Yeah, two, two and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, so, and I know, I, so I work with him and I'm also, um, been around him, uh, co-working at different locations and, uh, it's, it's, Nathaniel's always been a pretty interesting person. Um, but, that um, could be interpreted multiple ways. And <laughs> <laughs> you smell interesting. I, I said interesting. Not, <laughs> not delicious. <laughs> so, um. Yeah, I think I think I've like I know some of your history, but we'll, we're gonna we're gonna break it all down. Uh, I was reading a couple of other interviews that you had done for uh, other sites, um, and um, so let's go back to let's go back to your your beginning as a software person. From what I read, it said that your first uh, language to be dunked into is uh, Java, uh, and so was that uh, was that as a part of your apprenticeship at Role Model or uh, was that later or so technically that's all lies um no um so <laughs> so actually okay so very first language cubasic mm. um like in uh, uh uh in a christian boys program we were uh doing like merit badge kind of things and one of them was a programming badge i didn't even have regular access to a computer at that point but one of the guys who led the group he had uh 
the original kind of portable computer, the kind that was like suitcase sized. Um, <laughs> and so he brought it in and uh, I think we wrote up our programs. Uh, I don't even remember. I think I want to say that we either wrote them there or like we wrote them out on paper and typed them in like at, like in the evening when we were at the program. And so, yeah, the first the first version was the first language was QBasic. And then I actually um, I think I did start looking at Java a little bit um, early on because I was like, OK, so you want to go way back. So I was homeschooled all the way through um, from elementary to high school. And our house was actually a five minute walk from the library, like uh, walk up the street, go through, cut through some people's backyard. I'm sure they loved that. But I used to plow that route all the time uh, to the library that was behind um, our neighborhood. And I used to just like devour the the programming technical bookshelf. So I'd come home with like C++ tomes because that was what was supposed to be exciting and it was really confusing and I didn't really even have a computer to do it on. Um, and so then I started working with a guy and um, he ran a software company. It was actually Bible software. He would get texts in from publishers and then need to mark them up. So they'd have all kinds of weird markup in them for publishing and that needed to be stripped out and then various things to indicate like uh, divisions in the text and different things inserted for his software. And so sort of my first professional programming, I guess, was um, doing Perl um, to uh, basically rip through text and uh, strip things out and put other things into those texts. Um, that was when you were a kid, Nathaniel? Yeah, so I started working for him. I literally I had a work permit, so I think I started working for him around fourteen or fifteen, um, and worked for him through uh, high school. And um, yeah, so Pearl, and then um, I went to work for Ken Hour as as an apprentice um, around the time I was eighteen, um, and. Um, that's when I really dug into Java and started spending serious time with Java. And, and it was Java that I did my, the majority of my consulting with, with Ken and, and even afterwards. And how long were you working with Role Model? Let's see. I, I started apprenticing with Ken in 1998 and worked with him, I guess, for about three years till maybe four, 2001, 2002, somewhere around there. Um, when the tech bubble burst, it definitely made it a little harder to float a consulting firm. So um, at that point, I split off and started doing some individual consulting. And that was actually when I first started getting paid to do Ruby. So, And Neil, uh, it, so you, you come across Ruby and you're like, this is, this is sweet. Uh, but you said this is the first time you started getting paid to do Ruby, and at that point, I don't think Rails was uh, a, a like a thing yet, right? Right. So um, the interesting thing about me and Ruby is I was taught Java by a small talker, okay. which basically means I was taught to hate it from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you need that to hate Java. But go ahead. And basically told throughout, like we would be doing something and it was in small talk, this rah, 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 in small talk, this rah, 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 as we were like trying to get Java and bend it to our will. And so 
um, I looked at Python around the time that the Pickaxe book came out, just before uh, the Pickaxe book being Programming Ruby, the first English language book for Ruby. Um, and I looked at Python, but it just did not fit my head. Um, double underscores everywhere have to pass self in as the first uh, argument to every method. It just, it, it, it it was dumb. It was actually, looking back, most of my reasons were really dumb for not liking Python, but I didn't like Python. And then Ruby came along and is actually more small talkish, uh, significantly more small talkish from my perspective than um, Perl, um, and, or than uh, Python, and just fit me better. And I had the Perl background, so it looked familiar there too. So uh, really dug in to Ruby at that point. Uh, so that would have been to late 2001. Um, and then probably 2002, before Rails uh, came out, I was doing a paid Ruby gig, actually doing stuff with, I don't know if anyone remembers Fox, but Fox was a GUI toolkit, and I wrote some uh, a Fox GUI using Ruby, of all things. That's, uh, that's pretty out there. Yeah, it was pretty out there. It was, <laughs> let's face it, at that point in time, any Ruby jobs were pretty out there. So yeah. Now the, was that uh, okay? So you're when you're you're doing your own consultancy, and then eventually you birth Terralian. Yep. And so, can you describe briefly what was the what was what was Terralian? What was its goal? Its purpose? So in between those two things. So first, uh, so I do my own consulting for a while. Then I was like, you know, I've never had any. Real, progr real programming job, quote-unquote, that wasn't in a consultancy. So what would it be wor like to work in a regular company? And so I joined up to uh, a company called Mercury MD and started doing actually Ruby inside of there as well as some, I think I was doing Java there. I think I was mostly doing Ruby. Anyhow, so I worked for them for about a year and realized, okay, yeah, Cube Farms actually do suck as much as everyone says they do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and so uh, about oh probably probably two months into that I knew I wanted to leave but it took me about eleven months before I achieved escape velocity um, but I, so I started doing <laughs> yeah I started doing consulting um, and uh, just on my own but then I was I was fairly I was doing Rails at that point so Rails was a thing by then and I was like I'd been doing Ruby before Rails so I was. Uh, on the bleeding edge of Rails knowledge and was finding more work than I could do myself. And so kind of realized the other factor for me was I knew I wanted to eventually do a startup um, and to start a company, to be entrepreneurial. And I was like, well, if I can actually put some other people together, I can start going after slightly larger jobs, which would be for startups. So Trailing was very focused on consulting to startups, and that was selfish from my perspective. I mean, it was good for the folks we consulted with, I hope, but it was also good for me because it gave me exposure to entrepreneurship um, sort of from the inside because I got to work directly with entrepreneurs building software for them and got a better feel for the forces that are involved um, uh, from a business perspective, especially in terms of uh, building software in a startup context. Around what time was this, Nathaniel? Let's see. Terralian would have been 2003, I think I originally founded it. 
um, and ran through about um, 2010, I think. I finally actually shut it down. So Spreedly started before I shut down Trailian. Um, uh, I was doing both uh, concurrently for a while. But um, yeah, so that's, yeah, somewhere around there. And so, and but I mean, the basic premise was that you would kind of wrangle the work, and then you would you had like a, a stable of guys that could. I'm assuming they would come in as contractors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. sub, I never had um, employees. I always was working with subcontractors at Trailian, um, and so I would wrangle the work. Um, I would help to make sure it was organized. If there were multiple people involved on a project, I would kind of coordinate that piece. I would communicate. Uh, especially up front with customers to define the work and scope it and all that kind of stuff, and then really um, farm that out to one or more subcontractors to to crank through it. And so I, I can imagine that that probably had its own challenges. <laughs> Let's just say I would never do it again. Um, but you did it for a long time. I did it for a while. I did it for years. Again, you have to take it in the context of I was after a particular set of learning, and that's part of the reason I persisted at it for as long as I did. I mean, the original idea for Spreedly actually came out of that consulting work. Um, the the um, Some of the relationships in terms of people I um, ended up hiring at Spreedly came out of that consulting work. Um, so it was a huge, uh, important part of the process for me as an entrepreneur. And so it really persisted significantly longer than it economically made sense for it too. I, I want to jump in with a couple things that you mentioned there if you if you don't yeah. mind. One one was you said that it was a significant part of your learning as you went along in your entrepreneurship. And the other was that you had specific sets of of it it sounded like there were specific things you wanted to learn out of this. Right. And I think this is one of the things that's really hard for people from the outside to understand. I know for myself I know that there are certain lessons that I have to learn still, and there are ones that I've learned already that were really, really important and will definitely help me moving forward. But what were some of the things, when, when you say that, what, what are you talking about? Because I think a lot of people that listen to this are hopefully a lot of our, our future fans and our huge cult following. Yes. Um, <laughs> all, all three they, of know you. What that yeah, the, all, all 30. Are, we're up to 110 listens now, I'll, I'll tell you. Is that so unique? Let's, let's, what is that's that? To, just don't don't dig into the numbers All too right. much. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but what does that mean? You you were after a specific set of learning, and um, and this was part of your venture. So, for me, like my from an educational perspective, from a learning perspective, um, especially being homeschooled, I think, and just in general, the way my parents approached that. Like learning is something that you have to take responsibility for yourself. So you don't sign up for a class and someone kind of pours it into your head and then you've learned a thing and you can go and use it. Um, You have to actually actively engage with that, figure out what you want to learn, figure out how to actually attack that and and pick it apart. And so for me, I knew how to program at this point. Um, Probably, well, definitely not nearly as well as I thought I did, but still, I could code something. Um, And... So if, but what I, where I knew I was weak, cause I, I didn't have, um, you know, my parents were not entrepreneurial. Um, they tried some different things and kind of like, 
struggled through a few different phases of attempted entrepreneurship, but they didn't have any examples in entrepreneurship. So what I what I kind of knew is that I needed um, examples, and I had a good one in Ken Hour, but Ken was always very focused on a consulting services business, and that wasn't the kind of business I knew I wanted to run long term. And I did learn enough from him in that arena to be able to start and run Terralian for a period of time. So I leveraged that into the next set of learning, which was I didn't know exactly what I needed to learn. What I knew, though, is that if I could get into the right space, that that would give me the exposure to the things that I needed to learn, which would help me figure out what I needed to know. And so many times, like, the challenge is not gaining knowledge. It's knowing which knowledge to gain because you have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of resources, et cetera. And so just by 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 leveraging my skill with software and with consulting and services and selling those to customers in the space that I wanted to move into, which was very small software um, dependent, software focused businesses, um, I was able to sit there and kind of watch like, okay, how do they deal with customers? Is that, do I think that's a good idea or is it not? How do they deal with me as a software provider? Do I think that's a good approach or do I not? How do they deal with sort of all the administrative aspects? Like even how do they pay bills and, and how does that affect me and how does that affect my perception of them? Like all these different things, all of a sudden I'm getting exposure to that and and positive and negative role models as to um, what works and what doesn't in that arena. And so that was a huge um, learning experience. And then also, of course, like I said, the, the idea for like the best place to find an idea for, um, uh, a real business is right up next to other businesses, at least the kinds of businesses I'm interested in, which are more, uh, uh, B2B focused, right? More, um, uh, things that I can do f- to help other businesses be more efficient. So it was, it was a, a, a huge thing to be able to do that. And the, and the, that and like but I guess what you're talking about is is the thing that became Spreely, mm-hmm. right? Because you you're working with a bunch of folks, uh, Trailian. You're working with clients of Trailian, and then you notice what you notice that everyone has the same or seems to have similar gripes. And you're like, hmm, there's something here. Right. So there were various ideas we tried. Um, we tried one actually that kind of came out of internal to Trailian where we had a bunch of different tools. We tried building um, – I tried building a tool that would sort of aggregate all your tools into one view and that was interesting and horrible. Um, and then – but then what really happened is I was working with one particular customer, actually multiple customers in, in, in different ways where, okay, I'd build them some great software and now reasonably enough they wanted to charge people for it. And then we would go into a cycle of building out the billing for actually charging people for what I'd built for them, and it would take as much time as building them the thing in the first place. And that just seemed crazy. Yeah, um, that seemed very, very wasteful. And you know, looking around at the time when we first launched Spreedly, there was no Chargeify, there was no Recurly, um, there was no Stripe. There was no, like even Braintree um, didn't really have anything in recurring billing. Um, Authorize.net had ARB, which is one of the most horrible products ever. So it's, and PayPal had their subscription stuff. I implemented that and it was, it was the thing that finally pushed me over the tipping point into starting Spreedly because it was so bad. So there, there was an obvious need here um, 
And, you know, the funny thing is we worked on it for four, four and a half years and then decided we didn't want to do it anymore. But that's kind of another story. So, And then that was the that was the subscription side of the business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, subscription billing turns out to be kind of a pain um, because how people want to bill for their stuff is tightly tied up with their business and everybody wants to conduct their business in a slightly different way. So you end up being nibbled to death by a duck in terms of feature requests. Um, hey, I want to charge for three months this month, and then I'd like the charges to stop. And, oh, by the way, if they apply a coupon code, could you have that only apply to the first two months? Like, what? Like, <laughs> and, and especially when you started looking at people who weren't starting off from scratch, they were trying to convert from an existing system of some kind. Those were even worse because they'd built like sort of the whole way they charged their customers money around the capabilities of that other system. And so then they're trying to pound their, uh, their square peg into our round hole and it was just pain all around. Yeah. And so, I mean, you, that's the part that you, you figured out that you didn't want to do. And I know – so Spreadly was still doing that up to a point, right? But then you mm-hmm. kind of divested yourself of doing that part of the business. Mm-hmm. But the part of the business that you did want to get into was the um, the gateway management, right? Yeah. So basically we're running this – so inside of Spreadly, we built the build – like from the get-go, we said we're going to store our credit cards and we're going to be PCI compliant and we're going to let our customers pick – what gateway they want to work with. And we were kind of inspired by Shopify in that regard because they had Active Merchant. We're like, we can we can take Active Merchant and build on top of it in the subscription space where Shopify is building on it in the uh, shopping space. So we did this. We built a credit card vault. Um, we built integrations to a bunch of gateways. And one of the interesting things is, is we're getting kind of frustrated with all the feature requests from uh, recurring billing is we – started having prospects and even customers coming to us and saying, man, your, your recurring billing stuff is like really restrictive. I wish, but, but it's really great that you store these cards and you deal with PCI compliance for me. I wish I could just charge whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. And we had always wanted to pull that piece of the business, that piece of the software out into its own product because we knew that would make our lives easier from a PCI compliance perspective and everything else. So we actually started building it as a separate product alongside of the subscriptions product um, and got a few beta customers on it. About that time, our uh, current CEO joined the company. Um, and uh, and the, the thing that happened at that point was he went out and he talked to a bunch of our subscriptions customers. We had over 200 uh, people on our subscription management platform. He talked to them and he would send them questions and they'd kind of get back with little short replies like, oh, yes, really great. We use it. And then, like, there were these two or three beta customers on the new product, and he sent them email, and he would get back essays on how awesome it was and how <laughs> their business wouldn't exist if not for it and all this kind of stuff. And he joined uh, – Justin was doing um, sort of digital – like, basically, he worked at a company on the sales side that built the um, sort of license management and download management for companies like Autodesk and um, uh, I don't even know what else, but big companies like that that were selling software licenses. And so that's kind of why he was interested in Spreedly and joined us because we were doing the subscription stuff, which was similar to that. And we had this other thing. He's like, I don't actually know what that is. Um, 
he just I think at at first he just kind of sent them emails because we were like, well, we also have this other thing, and he felt obligated. But then when the emails came back, he's like, oh wow, maybe we should be going after this. And so we really refocused the company. Ended up um, selling the subscription management piece to Pen Payments. Um, and really completely refocused the company about three years ago now. And so when, when Justin kind of came to – I'm assuming he came to you and said, we, we should be focusing on this other thing and not, not this other part. Was, was that a relief for you? Were you like – Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Sigh of relief. The only, the only caveat to that was, oh, great. Now what are we going to do with the subscription management piece? Um, and so it took us a while to – Get to that that to a saleable point and get it transferred over. I mean, it was it was a good uh, nine to twelve months of my life just um, sort of divesting ourselves. But yeah, it was a huge relief. I think the whole team kind of recognized that an infrastructure play like what we're doing now was a much better fit for us than a sort of an SMB play like what we were doing with the subscription management stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I think that's what I, I recall too at the time that I was uh, working with you guys. Uh, but I have to ask, you know, looking looking back at from what I knew about Spreadly and the technical challenges of, you know, getting PCI compliant. I mean, you're essentially you are the shield to to provide that protection to everybody else who's using you. Yeah. Um, it it seems like the the amount of effort and expertise that goes into building that system. I think it's like the Joel Spolsky phrase. Did you ever feel like, as he put it, you were snatching nickels in front of a steamroller? That in any minute, no, like, like at any minute, one of the one of the big fintech companies was gonna, you know, surprise, we have a product too, and yeah. they were gonna come after you, or, or so yes and no. So definitely, it felt that way when we were doing the subscription management stuff because, like, we came out and we were in the market maybe for a year, and then Chargeify comes out, and then Recurly comes out. I mean, at one time, I was talking to an angel investor here locally, and. He basically told me, oh, great, meeting with you and kind of getting intel. By the way, this guy that I've been mentoring out in San Francisco where I'm moving back to, he's starting a company just like this, and I think you're going to be totally successful. It's like, okay, great, thanks. Um, So it definitely felt that way. And then, of course, like when Stripe came out, it wasn't exactly clear when Stripe first came out exactly what they were doing. And so that was was a little heart-stopping. But what – what we realized over time, especially early on in um, the process with Spreedly Core, which is what um, we call our current um, product offering, the the interesting thing was we were actually early and doing something uh, that no one else was really doing. And that the, our biggest problem was not competition. It was the fact that everybody went, why would I want that? I don't understand. Yeah. So we had customers that once they started using it, they were like, this is awesome, best thing since sliced bread. But when you're talking to prospects or even just people find you on the internet, they're like, huh? And that is a very different challenge than the challenge of selling against competitors. Um, And we feel like we're largely past that, uh, certainly on the the downslope on the other side of that. Um, and it's a great place to be now because we still don't really have any competitors and the market is catching up with us in terms of understanding what we do and the value that we provide. But it was an interesting challenge. So I guess not really because we didn't really see any the, – the thing with the entrenched interest in fintech is they all make their money off of processing. 
And Spreedly sits over here like Switzerland and is like, we don't care. Like, we don't make any money off of processing. We're software for payments. And we don't care where the transaction happens. And so it's really hard for these companies to compete with that because if they facilitate the transaction happening somewhere other than, than on their own systems, then they're, not, they're losing money. Um, so it's, 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 uh, it's a question we get asked often, but it's not really the answer I think people are usually expecting. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's not like I didn't expect, but it makes sense as to why you know, the larger interests would not want to cannibalize their own sales. Yeah. Or their own their own uh, streams of money coming into them. Yeah, it's, uh, it's classic innovators' dilemma, um, and and even just like how would we monetize that it doesn't make any sense to us. So, so I I was I wanted to ask a question about the moment where you said I need to do Spreadly full time. Yep. Uh, and maybe that's a different moment than. Uh, I have no choice but to do Spreadly full time <laughs> because it's, and I think you know Paul and I are kind of in the same boat where uh, either in the past or currently like we we have our own entrepreneurial ambitions and we're always kind of like thinking about that moment where okay like we're going to give up uh, doing this one thing to do something else but for you like where was that moment where you said this is it I, I'm doing this full time and I don't care what else is going to happen but I I got to make this work. So I think I mean it was it was not too long after so probably I think it was like 6 to 9 months after Justin our CEO had joined us he was he was working without a salary uh full time on Spreedly um and I was working part time on Spreedly and part time keeping the lights on at Terralian and that was certainly supplementing my income and we kind of um it basically got to the point where it's like Spreedly's throwing off hardly any money, but here, Nathaniel, you take the hardly any money just so that, like, either we should make this happen or we should just quit because this is really dumb to keep working on this on the side. This is just painful. And so it was, for me, it was kind of at that point where it's like, I know I could go out and get a full-time job coding and make up a year's worth of really low income. And I've always kept my debt low, and I've kept my expenses low. Um, my wife is a huge help with that. If you want to be an entrepreneur, um, marry someone that you have to teach them to spend money. That was that was my case. Um, and so uh, we lived frugally, and it was like we just I just need to do this, and it's going to be really tight. And it certainly got to the point where um, in the months, probably about probably about this time. Maybe maybe in September, um, the year before. So we raised our first round of funding in December of. Oh goodness, uh, two thousand and two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, something like that. So we raised that first round of funding, and it was kind of this thing where it's like, hey, we didn't know that money was coming in. I was like okay, we got to do something before the end of the year. I'm going to have to go get a job because I can't, I can't continue to make this much for much longer. And, and it was that kind of thing. Like the perseverance paid off because we, we did raise that funding. Um, it led to a much larger, it covered things until we did a much larger round um, in the following March, May, something like that. And so, but yeah, it was just, it was just this point where 
I get to these points where it's like, I, I would rather go for bust with this, um, and, and see it burn out, uh, brightly (laughs) versus sitting around on the sidelines wondering if anything will ever happen and kind of just continuing on with, with the status quo. And that was basically where things got to with Spreedly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you, you jumped in and then here you are, um, and I think as Paul mentioned uh, a while ago, like I and we just looked in the uh, the papers. So I'll call them the papers, even though it's the papers. Paper. <laughs> you know, I, mean? I, don't, I don't even read the newspaper anymore. But I'll just call them the papers. And you know, when I saw it, I said, "Hey, look at that! Spreely landed some money, and mm-hmm. uh, now it looks like you guys are on the next uh, uptick." As yes. Far as, like hiring and and making things happen. Yeah. Yep. Congratulations, by the way. Thanks. So uh, Paul Graham had this great essay just. Uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago about default dead or default alive for startups. Um, basically, if you don't raise any more investment, do you live or do you die? And so um, uh, a, a few, well, about two months ago, we got to the point with the business where we were default alive, like all good. And we had the opportunity to raise a much larger uh, round. And we basically said, okay, it makes total sense to do this because, like I said, the market is kind of catching up with what we do and understanding it. And we see a lot of opportunities. We know how we would go out and use this money to grow the business. It makes total sense to raise this this larger amount. So um, went and did that. And, yeah, now we're growing. I mean we just opened up seven uh, job openings on our site Um we're psyched to grow the team, especially so up till now, we've been a pretty good sized engineering team, total technical team of, of nine and a smaller business team, lean business team of three. And so this is we're doing some rebalancing initially. That's the first big focus is adding on some sales, adding on some uh, some overhead in terms of office manager Um we, we only work out of our office, uh, most of us, two days a week, and we have trouble receiving shipments because UPS delivers them and no one's there. Um, and so, you know, adding an office manager who can help us out with all kinds of things, not just receiving shipments, um, really uh, taking our customer support to the next level, all that kind of stuff um, becomes a, a huge uh, thing for the next step. Yeah, and... Um... I think I'd asked you in person, or it was a conversation that came up when we were in one of the co-working spaces, but uh, we had it, I guess we were talking about estimates. Uh-huh. And so I, you had a comment about how you do estimates at Spreedly, which I've heard other people talk about, but I never knew anybody who did it. And so I'm dying to ask you about estimation. Like you have an engineering group, and yep. you know I've never, I've never not worked on a project where at some point someone says, well, how long will this take? And uh, that is used as basically a planning metric for everybody else. So, you know, you're you're running the engineering group at Spreedly. I mean, do you have the same kind of conversation? It sounds like you do something differently, and I'm dying to hear about it. Yeah, so the thing with estimates is you have to back up and ask, why is it – because you see a lot – like you can go out there to software team after software team, and you will find them spending – hours a week on estimating 
their tasks. And if you see a software team that's spending that much time at the business's behest, the business must think it's getting value for that. So there's obviously something there, but the key, the thing that doesn't happen is we don't back up and go, okay, what is the business actually after? What do they want? And, and what, how can we give it to them without um, basically taking a hammer and, and beating our own hands with it? Um, so the, what we do at Spreedly is the business says, like we, we go into a prioritization phase. Okay, uh, first of all, we run our projects generally at month to two month, uh, either one month or two month resolution. We're not strongly iterative, but there's definitely kind of a, a monthly rhythm there. And, and certainly some projects um, are larger and take two months. So we go in and first we prioritize and we try to do that prioritization as close to actually starting the next project as possible because especially as a startup, priorities change so much. So sit down with the business. What's the highest priority right now? What's going to help us sell more stuff? Because everybody, including engineering, cares about that. How are we going to make existing customers uh, happier uh, and using our stuff more? And how are we going to sell new customers? I mean, especially as a software as a service business that once we have a customer, they're continuing to pay us every single month. Adding new customers is huge for, for everyone. And so we sit down and we go, okay, what is it? And then there's that general time box of, okay, how big do we think this is? And when we say how big, we're not digging into the technical nitty gritty of how long is it going to take me to add this field to the API? What we're really looking at is how long, how quickly can we give something to the business that the business can actually talk to customers about and customers can actually start using um, that would provide some value? So hey, here's this feature. Okay, well, that's like six months of work. And who knows by the time we got to the six months if it would, if we even have what customers wanted. So how can we slice off one month's work of work from that about and, and just deliver that? And so that's a collaborative process with the business where the business knows, our business folks know that we're all aligned around delivering business value to customers. And so they're not looking to beat us over the head they're just looking to know if they can commit to something with customers. They're looking to know if they can, they can um, look forward to selling that next month. And so get that in place. And then the key thing at that point is that the scope on that project remains variable right up until delivery. So if we get two weeks into it, we go, wow, the, the piece that we bit off, it's actually like significantly more work than we were thinking it's not a, well, you better work faster because we, we promised exactly that stuff. It's, okay, well, we've been talking to customers more and um, we understand that X, Y, and Z would be great. But you know what? Even if we could just deliver X, that's, that's going to provide value all by itself. And so we can, we can renegotiate that on an ongoing basis. And, of course, that then puts a real responsibility on the dev group to be extremely transparent with how things are going. So you don't go off in a corner and a month later come out and say, well, we said X, Y, and Z, but we're only giving you X because that's a surprise. And that, I think, is why businesses are willing to spend hours and hours of the dev team's time on estimates because they don't want to be surprised. But I think it's the wrong – it's a – 
it's a suboptimal way of trying to avoid surprise. A better way is just to com- over communicate and be willing to renegotiate um, on an ongoing basis as additional information comes to light. So, yeah, I don't I don't have like a nifty planning poker. Uh, uh, exercise that you can run at your company. Uh, I'm not selling consulting, so I don't have consulting things to sell you. Um, but what I can tell you is that when you treat it, if when you focus on the macro optimization of how do we optimize the whole organization to deliver value to customers that they will pay us for, you get a much better outcome than the micro optimization of how do we get the engineering group to just like do what they told us they were going to do. Um, or vice versa, the engineering group going, how can we get the business to stop changing the requirements on us? They're, they're both like totally inane and, and at counter, like it's at cross purposes with the overall goals of the organization. Yes. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you nailed you it. Win. <laughs> you win. <laughs> You're no, I think that's really good. I, I like the overcommunication part. It's amazing that you spent only one year in a cube farm and you got that amount of uh, understanding of what actually goes on. Yeah, well, you have to remember, I also spent a lot of years consulting. And if there's one thing oh. consultants get to do, it's watch their clients follow horrible processes sure. and, and try to impose those same horrible processes on them. So I got, I got years of exposure to really bad ways of doing things. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I, I have one, one last question or a request. Yeah. Um, so you, you're standing at the the precipice of all the all the folks that will follow us. Uh, they're just about to start their their professional careers. Um, either they're they're coming through an apprenticeship program, or no, they're even before that. They're they're looking at uh, maybe they're in their early teens and they're kind of figuring out, you know, what do I want to do? And if any of them have any kind of notion to become a person who is going to attempt a technical career. Yep. Or even an entrepreneurial career through technology. What would you tell them? What What would be the advice that you would give them? Yeah. So I definitely think about this a fair amount. Um, I don't know that I have any good answers. Like the the. Okay. So I will say some things, but the the first thing I'll say is that I think that one of the challenges with giving this kind of advice is that everyone learns differently. And has a different. There's so many different ways that we engage with uh, with learning, but learning is definitely at the center of it. Um, mindfully looking for opportunities to increase not just your knowledge of particular technology, but much more importantly, um, your understanding of people and how people operate, your understanding of organizations and how organizations operate. Um, uh, Learning the wisdom that says, okay, this code is really bad, but it actually reflects the organization that created it. So if instead of just rejecting it out of hand, I actually seek to understand what the, the context that created this, I'll better understand the organization that created it. Like there's so many things along that, that line. But you have to you, – you first of all want to be mindful in how you take things on to be going after um, – challenges that will increase your um, learning and your understanding. The, the more practical thing that I like to tell folks is I actually think it's a great idea if 
if things work out. It's great to go work for a startup company. Um, uh, we or a product company when you first sort of get out of whatever your initial whether it's a boot camp or whether it's an actual CS degree whatever it's great to go work for a product company but really what I recommend people do is go find a consulting company and run that gig for a couple of years two three four years because when you're just starting out the breadth of exposure that you get to different approaches by working at a consult in a consultancy or in a consulting role um, is awesome and amazing and really difficult to get working in a product company in my opinion um, and so I highly recommend doing it and then I highly recommend transitioning and planning a transition into a product company because basically for a while you're you're jumping to a bunch of Greenfields projects. You're coming in and doing maintenance on existing code and learning about it. But at some point, what you want to do is you want to settle down into a longer-term um, organizational project of software and technology and people and customers and build something bigger and more significant with other people who are all working on the same stuff. Um, I don't really regret either of those. I went through that path, and I don't regret either of those two steps. Um, I wouldn't trade either of them. So that's my more um, my more practical advice, I guess. That sounds good. Sounds good. Paul, did you have any other uh, any other questions? No, that's really it. I mean, you guys. I, I had a couple written down, but you guys have gone through them. Nathaniel, I just really appreciate. I know James and I both really appreciate you being here. This has been a really fun conversation. And uh, it's clear that Spreedly is a very upbeat place with a really, really high ceiling. Um, it looks to me like uh, it's one of those places that an individual who maybe is in a cube farm right now could go and be right up next to the business, like you said, yeah. and be right there watching a company start from the very beginning, from the very roots. And they can jump in and make a difference from day one. And it sounds like you guys are the kinds of folks where – you can't come in and not make a difference. You, yeah, you, yeah. You, you will make a difference one way or the other, and, <laughs> exactly. and, and we really hope that it's positive. Right. Um, but yeah, but it's I, the, like it's the best part and the hardest part if you come into Spreedly or an organization like it is you're gonna get you're gonna be right up next to the business. You're gonna have tons of interaction there, and it's gonna pull you and stretch you and and challenge you in ways that you have never been pulled or stretched or challenged before. So. Um, it's awesome. I wouldn't trade it for anything, but be ready because it's going to be challenging. That's awesome. The, the second thing that I'll say is office manager is perhaps the most significant hire a company can make, I believe. I, oh, I think my goodness. That, you have that no idea. I think so that particular excited. individual is, <laughs> is one of the main factors in keeping a company going. Um, that's the person that you have to get to know. I believe this for a lot of years and it's worked for me very well. Get to know that individual. That person is going to keep that place afloat, and I hope you make a terrific hire right off the bat, and the right person comes to you. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll I'll tell stories on our CEO because he tells it on himself. But uh, about six months ago, some of us were working in the office on one of. Uh, sometimes folks work in the office even on the two days when we're not all in the office together, and uh, there was no power. And and they're like, what's wrong? Like something's wrong with the building. They go downstairs. People downstairs have power. And finally, somebody thinks to call the power company. Oh yeah, you didn't pay the bill. Uh, so, <laughs> so 
Entre- that's going to really, need to happen from time to time. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So having having an office manager around sounds like a really great idea at this point. Yeah, I think that'll be great. Well, I'm looking forward to many, many more successes from you guys. And uh, I just really hope that people can reference this when they go back and realize that you were an overnight success one of these days. Okay. Ten years in the making. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Nathaniel. Yeah, thank you guys. Okay, so thank you so much. We, we really appreciated having Nathaniel on tonight, and we hope that you've enjoyed the podcast. Please go on to iTunes and review us, hopefully with a positive review. You are, after all, um, our crazy fan base. So uh, this is brought to you by my company, Beaufort Fairmont. We rid the world of bad code. We do that through automated testing. We write software to test software. When your team is interested in working with us, we can jump right in at any level into end testing, integration testing, or unit testing at Beaufort Fairmont. Our exceptional software engineers work with a variety of open source tools like Robot Framework, Cucumber, Selenium WebDriver, and others. We're proficient in C Sharp, Java, JavaScript, Objective C, and others. Call us right now at 984-244-2313 or email us at info at BeauftFairmont.com to start automating your testing. We're also brought to you by Code Providence, James's consulting company. Yep, we uh, help people make software that makes a big impact. And that is what they do, and that is what we have done today, hopefully, is make a big impact. Thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to you joining us next time for Episode 6, and uh, we look forward to that. Thank you so much. <laughs>